Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, I'm Aaron, and with me for this episode of FF Plus is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello! We love this show. It's so much fun to get together midweek and be able to talk about things that are not always just movie reviews. Now, I say that knowing that this show is kind of chock full of movie reviews in a way, but they're different. They're different when we go spoiler free, because we aren't having to dissect the in-depth themes. And so we just kind of get to give you a little bit of a hint, try to get your interest up for some different short films maybe that are out there that are Oscar nominated. That's on the docket tonight. Um, also, I'm going to be reviewing How to Train Your Dragon 3, colon, The Hidden World. If you've been listening to our last few episodes, you'll know how we feel about colons. It's not pretty. That's the short version. Is we should have a colon cleansing. Is what we should have. <laughs> <That's>... Colon cleansing. <laughs> I... Oh, that's oh, a genuine man. laugh, people. I that want was... you guys to pick that up. <laughs> that was not scripted. He's genuinely laughing right now. So <laughs> that's actually stamp that and that's... go back to it anytime you're like, "Hey, Aaron actually laughed." He's not just making that up. <laughs> that's really good. Colon cleansing. I like that. It's so witty. Okay. All right. Well, before we jump into the reviews, everyone, we are awarded the opportunity from WellGo USA to give away three copies of the outstanding foreign language film Burning from 2018. Now, this is a movie that I absolutely love, Patrick. I know you haven't seen it yet, but it was my second favorite foreign language film of the year behind Shoplifters. I thought it definitely should have been Oscar nominated for foreign language film, and it probably should have had a supporting actor nomination for Steven Yoon. I think it is really, really well-crafted. It's a slow-burn, dramatic mystery thriller, and it also kind of simultaneously plays out as this big metaphor. Um, it's it's beautifully shot. Got a lot of haunting images and just really great performances, uh, intriguing story all the way around. It'll draw you in, and it'll linger in your mind afterwards. So I highly recommend people seek it out. But we've got these three copies of the Blu-ray disc that we get to give away. And, of course, we're going to have a little fun with that. So, here is the drill. Listen up. What we're going to do is for the next three days leading up to the Oscars, if you've listened to this episode, you're going to email us and tell us what we both picked for the best original score and what our confidence points were for our pick on the best original score. When you do that... You'll be entered into a drawing for one of these three copies of Burning. And Monday morning, I think that's going to be February the... I'm doing math real quick in my head. 22, 23, 24, 25. February to the 25th, we will choose a winner. We will contact those winners via email, get your address, and send you out your new copy of Burning. So, again, at the end of this episode, the last section, we are going to make our Oscar predictions, and we're doing it even more dramatically by giving confidence points for our, our Oscar predictions. And so best original score, you need to send us an email to 
feelinfilm at gmail.com. That's feelin, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M at gmail.com with our picks and our confidence points, and you'll be entered in the burning drawing. Okay, well, it's time to get started, Patrick, and we're going to do that by talking about How to Train Your Dragon 3, or at least I am, since you haven't seen it yet. Now, with regards to this movie, a little quick background on where I come from with this. I absolutely adore this series, and I know you really liked the first movie as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, a couple of years ago, when uh, when Krisha was out of town, I took it upon myself to try to do some catch-up on movies that I hadn't seen. And so I double-featured this, uh, How to Train Your Dragon, with uh, No Country for Old Men, which was really awkward to double-feature <laughs> I was just trying to catch up, right? Or maybe it was Hell of High Water. It was one of those that was like, these don't go together, so I need to end on a high note. So let's do How to Train Your Dragon second. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I'm glad, because I think... I don't think you've seen the second one yet either, have you? No, it's in our voodoo, isn't it? Oh, it is. It most certainly is. I bought the 4K discs recently to enjoy on my new TV, and they are gorgeous as well. So these first two movies are five-star movies for me. Um, I went into How to Train Your Dragon 3 with extremely high hopes and expectations based on what I had been given previously from this team. And I was really wanting this to become the next Toy Story for me. The the rare of rare three-movie, five-star experience trilogies. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And I should have known. Um, I wasn't hyped for the trailers nearly as much as I was for the films previous to this. And so I should have seen it coming. But what... How to Train Your Dragon 3 ends up doing is, in my opinion, it kind of takes a step back and it gives us a real focus on the humor that was not there in the first two films. In the first two films, there's a lot of great side characters in this series and they accent the main characters and particularly the primary relationship between Hiccup, the young Viking boy who becomes the chief, and his pet dragon, the Night Fury Toothless. These side characters work really great when they throw in a gag once every 10 minutes. What they don't work great in is when they open the film with a 10 to 15 minute sequence of nothing but side characters and gags. And the humor just did not land for me at all in How to Train Your Dragon 3. Uh, And it's really pervasive throughout the film. It also has what is one of the most criminal things any movie can have, Patrick, which is like the throwaway villain that you don't remember and you don't care about and you don't really understand why he's there other than, oh, plot point, I guess, just to force something to happen. That's how we felt about this villain. He he hasn't been in the series prior. He just shows up in the series and produces this conflict for the characters to get us to where we need to be with regards to the dragons at this point in the story. Now, it is not a bad movie. Uh, it's still beautifully animated. The score by John Powell, gosh, it is sweeping. It is beautiful. It is lovely. It is one of the, reg- the original How to Train Your Dragon is one of my favorite scores of all times. And, and some of those themes coming through in this one as well. Um, the, there's these moments of <laughs> what one of my fellow reviewers here in Seattle termed dragon foreplay. 
between uh, Toothless and his newly discovered girlfriend, the Light Fury. It is amazing. The way that the animation is done and just the emotional depth that is generated from those scenes is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And we really enjoyed it and connected with it. And ultimately, though this doesn't work as that five-star experience all the way through, it ends up landing so well. I mean, if you could give like, if you think of it as a dive, the dive itself would be like, you know, a six or a seven probably, but it's a landing of a 10. Like it sticks the landing perfectly. It is the ideal send off for our characters for this relationship. I was in tears. Then we rolled the credits and I was in tears again. And I mean, it is exactly what I wanted from the series as far as how it ends. So yeah, I came away a little disappointed, but only in the context of I wanted a masterpiece and didn't get one. Well, this follows the same formula that the Toy Story franchise does. We'll probably get a How to Train Your Dragon 4 at some point. Stop it. <laughs> uh, don't even. You know, why you got to bring up bad memories and bad bad blood here? Like, we're we're like really reluctantly looking forward. We're not even looking forward to Toy Story 4. We're just... Like we it's expect, there. we expect it to be good and great even, but we don't really want it. So it's just yeah. a really awkward place for us. But anyway, I, I would definitely say go see how to train your dragon three fans of the series are going to enjoy it. There's, there's no way you come away from this film not being happy with the way that it ends the trilogy. It's just a matter of maybe not enjoying that journey in this particular film as much as you did the first and second movies. Very cool. Well, go see it. And if you enjoy the first two, obviously this is a winner because it sticks the landing, as Aaron says. And we're going to try to stick the landing for the rest of this episode as we get to talk about the Oscar nominated shorts for 2019. Not to be confused with the pants or the hat or the shoes. I did this pregame and Aaron gave me a look. And so I wanted to go ahead and throw it back in there so he could roll his eyes at that bad joke. So I said it was a bad joke and you decided to go ahead and use it anyway. Yes, because I think that there are enough people that listen to this that can appreciate my dad jokes. Hmm. Okay. And I did say dad jokes, not bad jokes. They could be one and the same, though. According to my son, they're basically simultaneous. They could be. They could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the first time that we've gotten a chance to actually discuss them together. Last year, we got a chance to take a look at these these shorts and do a couple of write-ups, uh, each from, from, our, from both of our standpoints. And I'm really, really excited to talk to you and get kind of the immediate feedback reaction for what you, you thought about these. So just as a general kind of reaction to them as a whole, what did you think? Are they strong? Were they not as good as last year? Did they su- succeed over last year? What were your thoughts? Um, are we talking one specific group of them or are we talking, are you asking me for all of them? Just, just all of them, just a general thing. I think last year was pretty strong, in my opinion. I really enjoyed at least two to three strongly from each category. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite have as many high points in the group this year. Um, so we are reviewing all three sets. We're reviewing the live action, the documentary, and the animated shorts. Um, and we're going to do this spoiler free as much as we can. They're short films, folks. So, I mean... Some of these are really short, like seven minutes long, and it's kind of like the plot is not really important to the story, you know? So just bear with us here. But um, but yeah, man, overall, I mean, 
by the end, it was a little bit of a chore to get through them. I'll be honest. I would agree. And I think that in the same regard, they just didn't hit on a multitude of points for me. They all felt kind of depressing in a lot of ways. Very overall depressing feel. I agree. Whereas I feel like last year there was a lot of variety. There were some, there were some heavier ones or some lighter ones. And to me, I think that's a good kind of cornucopia of, of examples there of representation. Not that you can't have shorts like this that hit on maybe a central emotion or theme, but it definitely, when you're doing these kind of binge watching them to get ready for something like this, it can definitely take its toll on you and you kind of need to watch something a little bit lighter to get out of that funk. I noticed that you watched Creed 2 as a means to uh, kind of pull yourself out of the the drama that was the the Oscar shorts. So let's go ahead and get started with animated shorts. These are probably my favorite category in terms of the best variety that you can have. And uh, we'll start with animal behavior. This is actually the longest one of the animated shorts. There's and always one. There's always one that has to try and go like and be like 30 minutes long and make me what angry. What in the world? And, and it's always the one I don't like the or I like the least. <laughs> you know, I, and that may be the reason why, right? It's just one of those things where you don't have to be this long. We're not doing a cartoon show. This isn't Tiny Toon Adventures or even a, you know, a feature length short. No, that's the oxymoron. Anyway, but it centers around this group of animals and they're in a therapy session and there's just a variety of like four or five different types of mammals, animals. There's a, there's a, there's a praying mantis. There's a dog who is the actual therapist. And it's essentially just a roundtable discussion of how they're dealing with life. And what I loved about this as one, it was probably the most humorous one of the of the animated ones, but also the fact that they were using their natural behaviors, for instance, the praying mantis and how she basically bites the head off of her mate after they have sex. <laughs> and she calls that an issue. And of course, they acknowledge that that's, that's an issue. But I love the fact that that's kind of personified, that the natural instinct of these animals is somehow an issue for them. And that's why they're kind of in this therapy session. Yeah, I didn't mind the concept at all. I thought it was pretty witty. And some of the jokes were definitely hilarious. The one you just pointed out was probably my favorite. Um, from there, I didn't have a bunch of them that I would consider memorable. And overall, this was just, it was just cute. It does have great voice acting. I really enjoyed the different, uh, the different voices that were used, I guess. I am trying to think of a better word for that, but, um, there's different high pitched voices used for certain animals that makes a lot of sense, I think. And other than that, though, nothing really stood out as particularly special with regards to the animation itself or, you know, the lasting feeling I got from this. And honestly, this particular short, Patrick, had me lamenting the absence of my hands down favorite animated short of the year because it was kind of about animals, too. And that was lost and found. I encourage you listeners to seek this out. Hopefully it's still up online. I know a lot of these kind of get taken down around Oscar time while the short film festival runs in the theaters and then they, they show back up online. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you can find them. But Lost and Found is phenomenal. Uh, and it is my favorite animated short of the year. And it, for some reason, did not make it off the short list and onto the nomination ballot. But yeah, Animal Behavior was like, eh, it's fine. 
Late Afternoon was the next one up in the animated shorts, and this is uh, centering around a, an elderly woman who is being taken care of by a younger person. And there are these pockets of moments where she's being given certain objects, and she is taken to this kind of mental state of going back into her memories. And I think this was probably my favorite of the five. And one of the things that I enjoyed about this was that we're kind of floating between the memories of the main character. And when you find out what is really happening and how the narrative plays out, that floating technique, that visual kind of bouncing through each of her different memories and how it eventually comes full circle to this other big thing really, really sets itself up for a precious ending. And that's the only way I could describe the ending is incredibly precious. And I think it's, it's one of the few in this entire grouping that feels in, that feels uplifting. Yes. Yeah. Very, very hopeful. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this one a lot as well. It's probably my second favorite. Um, and, and a close second favorite, honestly, as far as the animated ones go, it is a beautiful story told in a very short manner. And this is, this is kind of, this solidifies what a short should be. Um, and how you can cram everything into that short runtime and have it mean so much. It really reminded me of the power of memory. I was totally invested emotionally in this one and I really enjoyed the soft, soothing art style that's the chosen for this. I think it spoke to the material in a perfect way. It wasn't like a weird marriage of style and tone. And as was the case with several of these shorts, Patrick, I had a really personal attachment to the material. Um, this time, you know, I, I lost my grandfather due to Alzheimer's disease. And so experiencing this was kind of like being taken back in time and it handled it in a way that brought back fond memories and not sad ones. And, and I really appreciated that. Yeah. And it, it felt really sincere. It didn't honestly sincere. It felt, and felt that way. <laughs> Next up is the, is, is, um, bow. Am I pronouncing that? It's a three letter word. How do I butcher sure. that? Right? Bow. That works. We'll call it bow. And I, I mean, I remember seeing this when we covered uh, Incredibles 2 that I became absent on because of technical difficulties, but I did go see it. And it was the it was the Pixar short that preceded the movie. And it centers around this this Chinese mom who's suffering from empty nest syndrome. And so she gets this second chance at motherhood when she sort of adopts this dumpling that springs to life. And it's funny up to a point. It's very cute. and. I think visually it's right on par with everything Pixar does. It's just fantastic. The storytelling is right on par with right with what Pixar does. I think it's very consistent uh, in that they, you know, this personification of inanimate objects, which is what they're famous for. And the ending still creeps me out. I don't think I'll ever get over this moment that happens right before we get to the kind of the coda. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's very memorable, but definitely not a favorite. You know, if there's a single theme that runs through like all of these shorts this year, like a, a primary one, you, you mentioned depression. Death is also in there. Yes. And you wouldn't expect it in Bow, but that creep out scene that you're talking about, like that's all I wrote down in my notes for this review. It was still creeps me out when, and I won't say it because it's a spoiler, even though most of you've probably seen this short multiple times at this point. Um, yeah, it's not my favorite either. And it, and it creeps me out too. And I can't, I know what it's trying to say metaphorically. I get it. But 
sometimes your metaphors, reality and logic portrayal can kind of overtake the message you're trying to make because it's so jarring or shocking. And um, I-, I thought this was sweet, but that part is what lingers with me instead of the overall message that is really positive and, and really adorable in this one. And it, it's good. It's good. It is not one of my favorite Pixar's though, and not one of my favorites of this year. Well, one that I enjoyed was this next one, which is a uh, one small step. And it centers around this girl named Luna, who is this Chinese American girl. And she's like dreaming of becoming an astronaut. And from the day that she witnesses this rocket launching into space, she's driven to like become this astrophysicist. And as she grows up, she goes to college and she faces all this kind of adversarial stuff that kind of tries to prohibit her from from reaching her dreams. And the thing that here are the things that I pulled out one yay space. If you can center around someone's love for for space, I'm all about that space camp all over again for me. And this is a fantastic portrayal of this father daughter relationship in a way that is incredibly subtle, something that like Bao and Weekends, the one that we're going to talk about next, that is very cool about animated shorts is when the visuals and music tell the story and not the dialogue. And I thought that's what was the strength of of One Small Step, is we only got to see and interpret what we were seeing based on little pockets of visuals. Who would have thought that a box of shoes would have carried so much weight in a story? And I, I thought that that kind of subtlety in using visuals and using nonverbal communication to tell your story, it's if it's done well, it can be very effective. And I thought it was here. I echo all of that. This is incredibly heartfelt. It is very simple. And yet it is ultimately incredibly inspiring. And as the dad of a very smart, young teenage daughter, who is also a lover of space, both of us, and as, you know, going through the process now of being being a fatherly figure to a young girl who has these incredibly big dreams when it comes to education. This this really hit me hard. Um, I, you know, I only have one small minor nitpick with this one it is definitely my favorite of of the uh, nominated shorts. Um, it moves kind of fast. And I would have loved to linger a little bit longer with Luna and her father as she grows and see more of their relationship because I just, I loved it. I loved every second of it. Um, but overall, it's just, it's really expertly crafted and it's very, very sweet. I actually thought about how, you know, we get like Bao paired with Incredibles 2. We always have a short film before a Disney movie or a Pixar movie. I wish that Luna and the One Small Step Short could have played before First Man. I mean, it would have been such a great pairing for that uh and and it would have been awesome you know and kind of a an emotional short to go before the more stoic dramatic experience we were going to get i just love the two of those and you know i I recently watched apollo 13 for the first time this past week as well and i just enjoy anything that has to do with space exploration i for one am completely reinvigorated with my love for it and this helped continue that along plus gave me that father-daughter gut punch in a good way it's good i could also see this preceding interstellar in terms of the father-daughter relationship probably an even yeah probably an even better one actually so let's let's push for that next time interstellar goes into the theater we'll see if one small step can precede it 
Finally, we have Weekends. This is a, uh, a 15 minute, another lengthy animated short. So it's getting into the animated long category for my taste. But it centers around this, this boy who has, uh, divorced parents and the whole story puts him back and forth between essentially weekends with each one of his parents. And you have these like dreamlike moments mixed with the domestic realities of living in this broken family. And I think the thing that I pulled away from this was my criticism is that it's long and I don't want to make that the criticism. And so what I will say about it is that I think that the animation style is purposefully done for this particular short. It's very messy and it gives me that connection of the situation being portrayed of that broken home and kind of going back and forth swiftly, even though it, it would in actual time, it would happen over the course of seven days. Imagine going from one house to the other back and forth, back and forth. It can be emotionally jarring. I mean, whose rules do you live under? I mean, are you with dad now? And, and are you, is it okay to do this at mom's house? And I felt that as I was watching this, it took me a couple of times. I had to actually watch it twice because I didn't quite get everything. But the second time I watched it, I enjoyed it a lot more. And I think it was because of the animation style that really helped support that, that not absurdity, but that real confusion and that real kind of just messy life that this kid was living. I agree with you completely on it making sense. <laughs> I, however, did not enjoy the animation style and it kind of hindered my enjoyment overall of this short because I mean, that's what you're looking at for all of the length of it. And so while I agree that it fit the tone perfectly and made sense thematically, I just didn't like looking at it very much. This one is also very personal for me, and I love the story and the way it was told. I was not a child of divorce, thankfully, but I am the father of two kids who are, and I get it. Um, I get being the dad who's trying to be cool. And I've seen the differences in the households at times in our lives and how they're run. And I've never been quite to these extremes that are portrayed, I think here in this particular short film, but this was really poignant and delicately told in my opinion. And I think it really did a good job of running through the gamut of emotions that children's often have to deal with as they navigate the newness of like living in these two distinct worlds and going back and forth and shifting. I think that choosing to show us the surreal sequences in particular is what helped to illustrate that confusion and fear that you were alluding to earlier that a kid's going to experience when they go through this. I mean, they're going to have the highs and the fun, but they're also going to be terrified and they're not going to have answers for all their questions at all times. And so Despite this not being my favorite animation style, I do think it was really well done. And it was, of all of the personal experiences I had, the most personal short that I've seen in a long time. Well, I'm glad that left you feeling somewhat good because it's time to get the Kleenex out and go into the world of depression. Because Goodness gracious, man. I, just, I could not believe it as I was watching these live action shorts and going, tell me it gets better. Please tell me it gets better. Now, we have the fortunate ability to watch these in any order, 
and I don't know if you did this, but I tried to watch the shortest ones first so that I could feel like I was accomplishing a multitude. Of- I, I did. I did too by default. And I actually think that was a terrible idea because by the time I got to only having the long one left, I was like, I don't want any more. Well, let's go ahead and get the long one out of the way since I feel like that one's probably the biggest punch in the face uh, emotionally. Sure. So it's called Detainment, and it's actually based on interviews um, conducted by these two – on these two – two these. it's based on interviews conducted on two 10-year-old boys who are detained by police under the suspicion of abducting and murdering a two-year-old. I'm not making this up. This really happened. And I didn't know that this was a true story until I started watching this. And I made the mistake of actually reading an article on the actual events. I can only say that it was brutal. Now, there was no depiction of any kind of violence. It was merely talked about and hinted at. But to think about two 10-year-olds and the things that they did to this child just sickens me. I got sick to my stomach watching this and thinking about it. If I'm looking at this from a critical point of view, I think the kids acting took a bit more convincing for me. They felt a little stoic, a little bit kind of forced. But by the end of the actual film, it got very much convincing to me, especially there's a couple of moments during the actual climax of the film where we really get some emotional weight by the by the two kids. But honestly, man, I don't understand why this needed to be created. I mean, I'm being serious. This is yeah. not something that I don't know. I, I just I, I can't see why this is something that would need to be put on a screen. Literally written right here in my notes is no clue why this exists or how it got nominated. So I completely agree with you. I this there's no point in this. I Gross was the feeling I came away with. I did not enjoy anything about this. From a technical standpoint, I personally think it is very badly edited. I think that the acting was poor as well, like you said. Um, I think that the choice of retelling the investigation, but nothing else, it just doesn't make any sense. And then, and then 30 minutes of that, it, it just was absolutely, like you said, pointless. There's, there's nothing we learn that comes out of this that gives us a sense of, like hope or understanding or, you know, why do we need to see this replayed? I I, I agree with you. I am flummoxed by this one and one other one as to why they even got made in the first place, much less ended up on an Oscar nomination. Like it, it blows my mind, to be honest with you. And I too looked up the true story. And because I want to be fair and let people make that choice for themselves, it's a true story based on, the James Bulger case. So if you want to look that up, that's on you. But be warned, it's not a pretty thing. It is very sad. Very, very, very sad. So I'm curious what the other one is that you're going to pick. <laughs> Should I go with it? You want me to lead it? Let's, let's I, go, I can let's, tell you. Let's do it. It's skin. Okay. And I was sickened by this. And I immediately took to social media and posted and said, and y'all are mad about Green Book? Really? Really? Because what Skin is, is apparently it's put out by A24, and from well, what I've... Sense. I, right. From what... The only people who would touch it 
from what I understand, it's got uh, some buzz around it and that there's a feature film on the works from them. I, I do not understand. So this, this is a short film that follows a white supremacist kind of skinhead Nazi group. And there's this family. It actually has a really great actress. She's the lead actress in Dumplin' um, and Patty Cakes. She's the, the the wife of this man. And he has this young son, this teenager, like maybe actually he's not even really a teenager. Probably would he? He's probably closer to like 10, maybe 10 or 11, 10 or 11. Yeah. And he's experiencing this white supremacist lifestyle of shooting guns, drinking and being crazy. And they're in a grocery store. And a black man is playing with a toy and he smiles at the white boy and the father immediately instigates a violent exchange, uh, verbal abusiveness, um, hate-filled speech. It all leads to essentially them attacking this black man and it escalates from there into the black man's – it becomes a gang thing where the black man was part of a gang and so then this group retaliates. And, and, I, and I don't even know how to talk about this and, and be blunt about it without spoiling it. But what they end up doing in retaliation to this person is, to me, so disgusting and without any sort of message that is worth being told that I just – I am absolutely appalled that it exists. Um, in a world where – I'll put it this way – we are right now – having this big issue of blackface be brought back up and all these folks that are being called out for using blackface for this to be the way in which a short film tries to promote its message of racism. I, I, I don't, I don't get the point of this film. I don't understand what it is we are expected to feel for these characters. And I, I hated it, Patrick. I hated it. I hated, hated, hated it. Well, Okay. And I would agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I would call this, I put this in quotes, my favorite of the bunch and not because of the message, because the message essentially is a revenge message. And the thing that I pulled away from it, because it's very in your face uh, and obviously it's a kind of a we are making a point here unapologetically on either side with its narrative I kind of dug the message, but it is very blunt. The thing that I pulled away from this one was that it reminds me of the, I think the message that I pulled away from it was the sins of the father and how they can have an effect on the son. I think that was the more obvious narrative that was being told. While I agree with that message, and I think that having a six-year-old who looks at me and models me and tries to apparently get stitches like I did this week, except on his head, I have to realize that I have a responsibility to make sure that not I'm not that I'm just doing stuff right, but that I'm being sincere in how and I'm being genuine in how I live my life. And so I thought like you, it was another it, it was very uncomfortable and it didn't feel like it had a message. It felt like a, a hate message is what it was. And I didn't like the revenge aspect of it because it didn't solve anything. That's my problem. Is I, I don't have a problem with revenge films that show hate-filled actions. If there's some sort of redemptiveness to them or, you know, some sort of hopefulness to them. And 
I didn't see that. I just saw it as here's what hate gets you. Ha ha. You know, enjoy. It's gross. Yeah. There was no coda of, okay, well, what, what happens to the kid now? Because if he's the focal point, if he's the one that's getting this impressioned type of message, what happens to him after this action that he takes? And I wish there was some kind of coda, you know, three years later or four years later, because that's what I was left with was great. Now he's going to, what's he going to think? And maybe that's what we're asked to, to do as an audience is wonder what he's thinking. But that's not really satisfying for me as a viewer, even though I, I consider this probably my favorite because it felt the most kind of right there and the one I connected with the most. I didn't agree with it very much. And um, yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah. Well, moving on from that, uh, let's get to Madre or Mother, if you're not from Spain. And uh, this centers around a single mom who gets a call from her seven-year-old son who's on a beach and what starts out as a conversation about how you liking it, what's going on. Apparently, she is divorced and he's spending time with his dad. The phone conversation then kind of takes a turn because he tells her that his dad isn't anywhere nearby. And so it then becomes almost like a would-be rescue operation. It's kind of this living nightmare of wondering what's happening because – the kid doesn't know what beach he's on and he doesn't know where his dad is. And it tells the whole story in a single camera shot throughout pretty much most of the film. I think it cuts once, but that's really where the injury came for me. And it keeps us as an audience in with that kind of tension and it follows the action. It moves forward slowly and then back slowly and then kind of curves around while we're following the, the actress and I think she is pretty fantastic in this, seeing how she ramps up the tension with her movements and vocal inflections. Um, I didn't really care for the ending, felt kind of weird to me. Didn't feel like it resolved for me personally. But up to that point, everything else felt really good. Well, I would agree with you. And the lack of an ending, so to speak, the lack of resolution was a knock on it for me. Um, and it kept it from having the sort of overall impact that I think it had potential to have this. It was, it was so intense, Patrick. I mean, it was, and it was horrifying in concept, uh, the way that the acting is and the camera work, both very, very good. It's got that single location. It's confined the camera following you around the house as you're going into the bedroom to look for something and you're coming back out into the living room. It felt less like a short film to me and more like a single scene within a film. Not like there isn't really a plot. There is just a situation that is being dealt with. It is a moment in time. It is a slice of life in the sliciest, smallest slice of life that you can imagine because it's literally just one moment in time. So because of that, it did. It kind of felt incomplete. Like there was no arc to it, really. It was just... It came off more as something you would see in like an audition room where like, hey, we're going to do an audition where then this scene, you're going to be going through a terrifying experience where you think your son is lost on a beach and you have no way of getting a hold of him. But like, what's the beginning and end of this? How did he get there? Why is he left alone? And what's going to happen to him? And will she ever find him? And 
it's so it's it's an acting showcase in my opinion and it's incredibly well done in that regard but as far as overall considering it like a short film it just didn't work that way for me yeah i think it was an exercise in cinematography and acting more than anything else i think you hit it right on the head that it felt more like a scene from something else as opposed to a complete narrative and i kind of felt that way about this next one fav which is uh, from canada and it centers around these two kids who are playing this kind of game of power like i guess they have a tally mark and they enter into this like surface mine of some kind as they're running around with like a rock quarry and something happens <laughs> quote something happens dun 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 and at that point i was like all in i was leaning forward going okay what's gonna happen this is kind of cool i love the premise and i love the conflict but the last few minutes did a lot <laughs> like madre in that it kind of fizzled out. Like they didn't feel like it had a completion. It didn't feel like it had a resolution of any kind. If there was grief, that was sort of there. And then I get the very last shot personally, but it didn't land for me. And so I thought two thirds of the short were great. And then the last third was just kind of like, all right, let's just move on to the next one. This is the closest thing of, any of the short films in any of the categories to a five star for me. This, okay. this, I was completely floored by five and it is hands down without question. My favorite of the group. I was wrecked by this experience. It's such a relatable thing when you are seeing these two boys are out playing in the woods and the train tracks and they're just, yeah, the, the game that you're mentioning, I, I didn't know that it was called. I don't know if it has a name, but like they're trying to one up each other in different various ways. Um, early on, one of the ways is they're trying to get each other to look or to flinch, things like that. You know, like, oh, I'm going to stare at you until you make, you know, if you laugh, if you laugh, you lose kind of thing. Or um, one of them is like, look behind you. There's a fox. Ha ha. There's a fox, you know, and the guy doesn't look. And so he like loses because, you know, he or he wins because he didn't look. And so they're continuing to play this game and it's setting up this feeling of you're waiting for the boy who cried wolf situation to occur. At least that's how I felt about it. And I got that when the main primary conflict occurs, like that's how I felt it, it kind of starts off that way. And it takes them a while to like understand and realize what is taking place and how this, the seriousness of it. It is so intense. I mean, the the mother is very intense as well, but this one was even more so for me. I was absolutely invested in it. It had outstanding child perfor actor performances, in my opinion. It is incredibly beautiful cinematography. It has this minimalist take on the way it's shot, but it makes incredible use of the landscape and this quarry you referenced. It is emotional. It is haunting. And I, I mean, it just to me, it just captures the danger of these things that you might never see coming, especially at this age. And like you said, ultimately the portrayal of how a child might go through some sort of grief or reckoning with a situation, at least in the immediacy of that situation kind of occurring. I, I just, I completely floored by this one. I absolutely love Falv and I cannot recommend it enough. Excellent. Well, good stuff, man. Also, Fav taught me something about French Canadian language and that, 
the phrase what the F is the same in both English and French. So just as a little FYI there. You know what else? Multiple of these were actually French Canadian. So Fauve, um, Marguerite, which we're about to talk about, uh, Madre, all of these were French films, actually. Okay. Madre I- is in Spanish, but it's by a French filmmaker. So there's like, there's like two French Canadian ones and one straight French one. So I, it was surprising to me how many of these were foreign language films in general, but then we get like a majority of them in French or made by French uh, folks as well. Those guys know how to do sh- do short films, I think. We need to learn from them. That's where you need to go. Where we yeah, we're bringing skin to them, apparently. Oh my gosh, <laughs> don't even. All right, all right. <laughs> so we're down to I think the last one in the live action shorts, and that's the aforementioned uh, Marguerite, which I think is the front runner in the Oscar nomination. I think it's the it's the favorite for for this particular category. And as you mentioned, it is a it is a Canadian film. And it centers around this aging woman and her nurse developing this friendship that inspires her to unearth unacknowledged longing, <laughs> as the synopsis describes, and helps her make peace with her past. I didn't really see this coming in terms of what I got. I tried to make it a point not to read the synopses of each of these films so that I can kind of make my own interpretation. Because the thing about short films that I love, whether it's animated, live action, or docs, is that it gives you the opportunity to discover and interpret on your own. I think Neil Blomkamp is really great at this in his shorts, in crafting well-told stories, and then giving you an opportunity to say, well, what did you think of that? How did that make you feel? So for this one, seeing where it went was unexpected, but I had the same kind of reaction to the thing that we won't give away that I did to hearts beat loud and how they handled what you and I know the one of the relationships in heart hearts beat loud. And I think what I enjoyed most was the, the sound mixing and the score that were very intentional in this. I loved in the very opening scene, we get, we get Marguerite, having a bath and so we hear the water just dripping on her and then we just it's this very tender caretaking that takes place w- from her caretaker because that's what she does but the way in which she you know puts lotion on her legs and makes sure that she's taken care of you know brushes her hair it is incredibly um i want to say romantic but not in the sexual sense but in a very much like a a companion type thing and when you find out more about Marguerite, everything about that relationship starts to take on a whole new weight. And to me, I thought it was incredibly poignant, um, tender. I don't, it very, very sweet. I think is probably the word that I would best describe how I felt coming out of this one. Yeah, I'm with you for the most part. It is definitely a tender story. And I think you know, dealing with this idea of uncovering a, a long lost longing and, and coming to kind of try and make peace with it is a big thing to handle in a short film um, and to expect kind of one moment in time to solve that. But when you put it on context of this elderly woman and she is, you know, has this major illness and we don't know how long she's going to be around and that she's clearly not had an opportunity to voice certain feelings um, for a multitude of reasons. 
it is very precious to see the way that it's handled and the way that someone allows her to do that in a safe way and to continue to support her um, through her experience with that. I will tell you that I personally was a little distracted because I was busy reflecting on the illness. Um, we're all, we all, we set it up at the beginning, like really focused, hyper focused on the illness. And it was extremely close to my mom's. So she has blood sugar issues. She's got kidney failure and she needs dialysis. She needs somebody to help her take a bath. She's got really swollen feet. Like I'm guessing she had diabetes and this is where this all came from as well. And that, so it was a bit of a thing watching this. Um, because that is how my mom uh, ended up eventually passing away. You know, she was a lifelong battle with diabetes and led to this kidney failure, which ended up um, eventually killing her. And so I was kind of focused on that and waiting for like, where's the illness thing like going to come back into play, you know, but I love the hearts beat loud comparison. I think it's a very good one. It is a tender, sweet moment, um, if not a bit awkward at, at the same time at the end. And it's nothing fat, flashy or fancy in the filmmaking of this it's it's not but it is is definitely what i would consider something that is oscar worthy yeah i think the last shot in particular is one that that leaves me satisfied with the the overall short so that may have i think i may have let that jump over skin which i know you'll be happy with as far oh my as my god favorite. yes so. i'm freaking absolutely happy when people hear this episode and then they go watch marguerite and they watch skin they will be very happy too and they yeah. will hopefully like come and like throw stones at you i hope not or do weird things with tattoo ink um all right last category the doc shorts this is a lot of fun and i'll tell you what this category in these five films and specifically reminded me of why i love documentaries because and it's because you can tell a story in so many different ways you can actually create a documentary and give information in a multitude of ways. And I know that sounds really obvious to say that, but each of these in some ways overlap, but they all, I think, feel they all give a way of telling their stories in different methods. And so let's start with the first one, A Night in the Gar a Night at the Garden. This was a, I think our shortest one, it's seven minutes. And it's essentially archived footage from a gathering that took place back in 1939 with about 20,000 Americans in New York's Madison Square Garden to celebrate the rise of Nazism. And I was really uncomfortable with this because I'm an idiot and I didn't know what a night at the garden meant until I finished the doc and I was like, oh, Madison Square Garden, New York, America. 1939? Wait a minute. World War II has not happened yet. What's going on here? And I started getting a little freaked out because I, I was thinking, wow, there are a lot of Americans that believe in this guy, Hitler. There's no narration that's needed. It's all just footage and it's all recorded speeches. And then there's this incident that happens and then the reaction to that incident just completely gave me chills and the fact that i wasn't even aware of this event really kind of gave me pause because it made me realize wow nazism didn't necessarily start or even live in germany that it was something that actually lived here for a decent amount of time 
Yes, absolutely. I was very shocked by the knowledge that this presented of this occurring. Um, on one hand, I don't think I was, I don't think I was shocked that it existed or that people exist. I was shocked that 20,000 people could potentially gather with this. It was actually something I really noticed was when they were doing the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't know if you caught this, but they specifically left out, um, under God. They do everything except the under God part. And I was like, hmm, interesting. That's when I thought I realized something was up. Well, that and like everybody doing the Heil Hitler symbol in the audience at the beginning of it. Uh, yeah, this is, it is kind of shocking or very shocking, but it is also, in my opinion, a six minute YouTube video of some archival footage with a little bit of a text blurb at the very end that says, Hey, this is what this was. And it's, I guess the point of this for me, was lost it was kind of like we were once really terrible and history continues to repeat itself and that's probably bad so i didn't feel like this was a documentary at all and i think i mean i'm I'm not kidding you folks six minutes of actual like content without the credits that's not a documentary i don't care if it's a short documentary like to me that's not a documentary it's just some footage you're not having any say in anything you're not really putting through a point so that kind of didn't work for me at all. I feel like that footage at the end of Black Klansman, I don't know if you've gotten around to watching it yet, um, but for people who have, uh, there's an integration of footage from um, some attacks that took place in Virginia um, earlier, a couple years ago, some white supremacist attacks where a car was driven through a crowd. I feel like someone could take that footage <laughs> a couple of years from now and like six minutes of it and like be like, oh, here's a documentary short. Like that's the equivalent of what this is, you know, 10 or 15, 20, 30 years later. So it didn't really work for me in the context of what it's nominated for. But yeah, as far as the information, it was like, oh, wow, that was shocking. And then I move on. Okay. Good stuff. Black Sheep's up next. And this was one that is actually my favorite kind of documentary storytelling. You intermix interviews with, um, with kind of the, um, This is my favorite kind of documentary in that it intermixes reenactments with interviews. There's a lot with Ken Burns type stuff where he sort of does this with photos and video, but there are other documentaries out there. Um, one about the MIT guys that went at blackjack. That's kind of like that, but I'm a sucker for those types of, of docs. But what makes this powerful is the fact that, so it centers around this, guy named Cornelius and his family that move out of London because of this high profile killing of, of someone named Demiola Taylor. And this is the first time I've heard this name. So I'm, I guess I'm out of the loop, but they move to this new town and they discover that this new place is run by racists. And so Cornelius has to take drastic steps to integrate himself into this world. And it's really interesting to see how he tells the story and how the footage is reenacted. There are moments where as he's talking, his reenacted counterpart is saying the same things. He's reciting what I would consider dialogue of some of his attackers at one point. And so you hear his voice, but you see it mouthed by these white kids. And I think it ramps up the tension. It doesn't devalue the reality of what it is, but it almost feels really dramatic. It feels like a like a live action short. And I feel in a lot of ways 
like it reminds me of detainment only in a better way because I feel like this is a short, a doc short that whose story needs to be told. I think it's important. I think it's, it's not only interesting, but I think it leaves you with a message that is, is lasting. At least it was for me. It's, it's the one that I'm probably going to remember more than any of these other doc shorts. Yeah, me too. Um, for sure. And I absolutely agree with the tone and the way that it is told. I love the style as well. It's just focused on him. It's an interview, um, all about, you know, him trying to escape racism and, and this toxic masculinity that is also a part of his world. And of course, it's showing us that in the context that it is a part of all of our world still today. And my heart broke for him the entire time I was listening to this. It was devastating to me. It's not flashy. Um, the few cuts that it does make, you know, to the, like the dramatic recreations, those worked with varying effect for me. Some of them were powerful. Some of them were just kind of like didn't really feel like they belonged. I love, though, most of all, that he never raises his voice. The documentary never yells. Unlike many films um, that tackle race in the, the current climate, this one doesn't scream and kind of go at hate with hate in a way it shows us the sad reality of someone who's essentially given up because the world has given him no reason to believe that he can be any different or that his life can be any different. And there's an ending line in this one that yeah. is just, <laughs> I mean, you're going to say the exact same one I was going to say, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't think I'm going to quote it. Okay. I'd almost rather people experience it for themselves, but it is super powerful mm -hmm. and it puts everything into perspective of what he goes through and you're going to see some shocking actions that he took in order to try and deal with the racism in his life and you're going to be like wow i can't believe someone went to those links and it led him down this path and it's brutal it's brutal and i my heart broke for him in a big way and i think that this is a great documentary short uh, it's definitely my favorite yeah it's my favorite too all right two down three to go next up is period end of sentence, which I think is a fantastic play on words. And this short documents life in a rural village outside of Delhi, India, where these women are leading a what the synopsis called a quiet revolution. And what they're doing is they're fighting against the stigma of menstruation. And I read that synopsis and I was like, what? <laughs> okay. And my reaction is precisely why I probably needed to watch this documentary. Because what happens in the doc is that these women are shown how to create pads, essentially, for their menstrual cycle. Up until this point, they've been using rags and things like that. And the documentary reveals how detrimental that is to them sociologically and emotionally, how it portrays them. And by giving them this opportunity to manufacture these pads, not only for their own purposes, but also to be able to sell them, I found this very inspirational. I love the duality of breaking down gender barriers as well as educating on something taboo like menstruation. And at times done in kind of a comical way when they interview some of the men and they, they ask them, 
do you know what this machine is? And the men respond, isn't it? Is it for Huggies diapers? Is that what it's for? I also love that the documentary and the machine used to make the pads was funded by bake sales, a Kickstarter and yoga thons by this by this. I think it's a high school or a college. It was a school of some kind. And knowing that there is this faction of people that that live in the U.S. who see this as a need and have seen this kind of revolution take place. It's incredibly fat. It's incredibly inspiring and, and motivating. And I loved seeing how empowered these women in Delhi became because of this opportunity. Yeah, this is really weird. <laughs> and uh, like you, I agree. I mean, as far as target demographic, th- this is one of the kinds of documentaries I like the most because it's truly showing me something that I know nothing about. Like, nothing. No idea this was an issue in any part of the world. Um, and, th- and it's really cool, albeit very awkward at times, to see how technology can help this culture grow in its understanding of what we just consider a natural bodily function, like menstruation, and also be able to provide women and girls uh, a sense of confidence and empower them by giving them jobs. Like this thing brings so much value to their world and it completely changes things. And it's, it's fascinating because we live in America and we are on the cusp of the technological cycle here. We are always in the innovative side of things. And so when you see these parts of the world that are what we would use the phrase stuck in the past, they don't live like us. They don't have the same understanding of what's available or, or what they should or should not think based on, you know, appropriate, you know, today's standards, you know, political correctness kind of thing. Like th- their culture is different. And I love this. I thought it was really, really cool. I, it's not my favorite because I just, it's really weird to watch this, frankly. Um, but I think it's awesome. And I think that it's a cool story that's being told here. And I, I'm pretty proud of them for doing this. Me too. Endgame is our next one. And this is a documentary that centers around loved ones who are close to their lives ending. And it, targets several different individuals and how they're dealing with that, what their decisions are, how it affects their family. And if you wanted a more depressing documentary, I don't think you can get much more depressing than a whole doc that centers around dying. And the first note that I wrote was death, death, and more death. That is not a spoiler. In the end, they all die. I mean, that's just kind of what the documentary does. But I love the fact that there's this breadth of methodologies that people are using to prepare for it. Uh, some want to fight, some want to just go, someone want, some want to be in their homes as opposed to the hospital. And there is a, there's a delicacy that's taken place, not only with the family members that are affected by that, but also the caretakers, those that are, you know, in hospice. Um, I think there's other programs that are represented where, they take them off life support and they just let their bodies relinquish any kind of energy that's left. And, and what we have, I think, is a sense of peace where for some of these guys, they're leaving 
feeling like they're at peace with their circumstances. I don't know that I got that from all of the folks that were were documented specifically, but I like that that variety. I like seeing how different people respond to that. I don't celebrate that necessarily because dying sucks. Nobody wants to die, even though we all do eventually. But seeing how they process that and seeing how it affects not just the person who is dying, but those that are that are loved by that person. And um, yeah, it was it was really good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose it, this reminds me a lot of a documentary that was nominated a couple years ago called Extremists, very similar um, concept covering elderly folks in their dying time of life. This is not an easy watch. You mentioned that. I agree. But I, it's also not an easy watch for me because it is incredibly bland, like bland. There's nothing really going on here except just following people around. Um, and we're dealing with these end of life plans, seeing hospice kind of as an assisted transition of sorts. I go back and forth on how I feel about these subjects being filmed in the first place, honestly, um, and then put up for awards at times. It kind of ruffles me wrong, and I just don't have a great feeling about that. At the same time, I do like that there are options out there. People have to choose these things for themselves, and it's not my place to decide. Um, I was ultimately saddened by this for sure. But I don't feel like I really learned a lot or that I had much of a change of heart in any kind of way. I mean, I had empathy before for people in this situation, and I still do after. So it didn't create that in me, and it was just kind of a okay experience for me. Yeah, I would definitely agree. The way in which the doc was filmed and told is not my favorite because it, it's exactly what it is. It's just following people around and cutting the, the footage together. As a filmmaker, I will tell you that's not what happens. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it, and I'm pretty sure there's a ton of footage that was not used. But of the types of documentary storytelling, this is my least favorite because it's not as compelling. And finally, we have Lifeboat. So this talks about volunteers from a German nonprofit who risk the waves of the Mediterranean to pluck refugees from sinking rafts, pushing off from Libya in the middle of the night. And... I got to tell you, I think maybe it was because it followed in-game, or maybe it was because of a similar type of style. But I didn't really get into this this much. It was, it felt more like something from the History Channel, which I guess most stuff from the History Channel is documentary. But it didn't. While the events themselves were pretty amazing, and what happened was pretty fantastic, the way in which the story was told, it felt very much like a news report. It felt like okay, here's who we are, and here's who we're going to find. We found them. This is amazing. And again, I don't take away from what actually took place, but it from a if you're going to give something an award, if you're going to nominate, it's got to be somewhat compelling. And if the story is compelling enough, then I guess that's one thing. But to me, when I see all these other docs in this category, none of which are like, wow, I still think you need to bring something to the table. And I think Endgame and Lifeboat, for me, kind of suffer that. Here's what we found. Here's the footage. And we're going to talk about it while we show you. Same response here. Yet again, uh, very dull doc overall, in my opinion. I, I do enjoy that, you know, again, I'm getting, having my attention brought to these folks that are real-life heroes. That's what these people are, and we need to acknowledge that. 
They are giving of their life. They are spending their efforts to help others in need simply for the sake of humanity. There is no personal gain in this. They don't know these people. They are strangers. They are doing it because it is a need and it is the right thing to do. And that is beautiful and should be celebrated. And from that standpoint, I think it's great that we see this because this is a refugee population that I personally was not super aware of. Um, and I didn't know about this particular method of them trying to uh, get out of their country. So it shines a light on that. And, and, you know, as always with these refugee type stories, it does show us some of, you know, what it's like for them to risk death to get away from the horrors of living somewhere that to them is worse than risking death. So it's a tragedy in that sense. Um, but it is beautiful and hopeful. It's just not a great documentary. <laughs> Roger that. Roger that. Well, that about does it for our reviews of the, of the short films of the 2019 Oscars. So if you're still with us and hopefully you are, now it's time for some fun. If you haven't been up on social media, then we'll give you a little reminder. This is where we get to talk through what our Oscar picks are going to be. And like anything between two best friends, this is going to be a competition. And for us specifically, there will be a pop figure up for grabs, which I am planning on taking back the throne of pop figure ownership. You've taken the last two. It's time to take it back. <laughs> take it back now, y'all. Take it back. Take it back. So rather than just picking who we think is going to win each Oscar, we have instituted confidence points. If you're not familiar with what confidence points are, here's a quick summary. We have 24 categories. We are going to pick who we think is going to be the winner in each category, and then we're going to assign a number between 1 and 24 to each one of those categories, and it will be a reflection of how confident we think that pick is going to be. So in other words, if we think that the documentary short subject is going to be in-game and we feel extremely confident about that, we're going to give it a 24. If we feel like it's going to be not so much, it can be 15. And if we feel like it's completely off, like it can go in any way outside of what we're going to pick, we'll give it something like a 2 or a 1. So we've assigned each category a number. That number exists only one time, so 1 through 24. And so what we're going to do now is go through each one of the categories and give our pick and our confidence number for you. And just to recap, from the beginning of the show, we have the three copies of Burning Up for Grabs, those three Blu-ray discs that we're going to give out to winners of the folks that email us who our picks for best original score and our confidence points. So whoever Patrick and I pick for the best original score with our confidence points, you're going to email that to feelinfilm at gmail.com and you'll be entered into a drawing and we'll pick three winners and send out those discs on Monday morning, February 25th is when we will do that decision. Patrick, I do want to say right here as we're about to in kick this off, I love that you brought up confidence points because this completely altered the way I approached everything. Now, I also want to be upfront and say I kept my picks the same. I wanted to do that from an integrity standpoint. I wanted to, this is my sheet of integrity, if you will, for March Madness. Um, I'm going to take this to my Oscar party on Sunday. It's going to be the same one that I use there. I'm not going to change. So I didn't change my picks 
strategically, but I definitely did confidence points strategically. And it was kind of fun to determine and see for myself where I thought something really was a pick or where I thought maybe like it was more heartfelt in nature. Okay. Well, if you want to make it more integrious, <laughs> perhaps we should scan our ballots and send them to someone like Jeremy and then he could tally up the points. Let's do it. Okay. So we have a third party. Jeremy, you're on the clock. We'll send this to you and you can take care of it on Oscar night. All right. Sounds good. Leading off, we're going to just fly through these because there's, again, 24 categories. We're not going to mince words or linger. We'll start with animated feature film. We have Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, Mirai, Rock Breaks the Internet, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Pick and number. Spider-Man, duh, and 22. Weird. I have Spider-Man and 22. Oh, great. So we're going to be the same the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cinematography. Cold War. The favorite. Never Look Away. Roma. A Star is Born. What do you got? Roma. 21. Dude. Same here. Oh my gosh. You cheated. You I'm looked not, over my shoulder, didn't I think, you? Exactly. <laughs> I ghosted you. I ghosted you. All right. Costume design. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Black Panther. The favorite. Mary Poppins Returns. Mary, Queen of Scots. I'm quite confident we're going to be different on this. I am going to go with Black Panther, but this is a four-pointer for me. Okay. I'm going with the favorite, and I'm going to give it a nine. Okay. So both of us a little less confident down here. A little less. <laughs> Anything below <laughs> oh, Maybe a lot. A lot less. <laughs> I mean, you can only get less confident eight more times. <laughs> All right. What do we have next? Okay. Documentary feature. We have Free Solo, Hail Country This Morning, This Evening, Minding the Gap of Fathers and Sons, and RBG. Well, I think my pick is a no-brainer here, and everyone knows what it's going to be. It's definitely Free Solo. Okay. But I'm only going to give this a confidence of seven, and this is one of those things where this award is going to make or break my award ceremony this year because I care so much about it and I want Free Solo to win so badly. Like, if they don't win that award, I'm going to be extremely devastated. Is, but it, is this your La La Land? <laughs> it, it, for this year, it is. But from a confidence standpoint, I'm really scared of something. The absolute most stupid nomination in this category being RBG should not be there. And I'm worried that it could actually take this victory. Okay. Well, I have Free Solo as well. And um, I'm going slightly higher. I'm giving it a 13. So it's in the more confident. Excellent. Anything after 12 is more. And then, yeah, whatever. We got it. So you get more points if my favorite documentary wins. So I lose no matter what, basically. Hey, in your heart, you win. Mm, and that's that worth it. Doesn't count. That's, that should be worth <laughs> it to you. <laughs> documentary short subjects. We just talked about these. Uh, we have Black Sheep, Endgame, Lifeboat, A Night at the Garden. Or how to make a YouTube video on make it to the Academy Awards. And period. End of sentence. I'm going black sheep, but only putting six points on this simply because these shorts are always completely unpredictable. No matter what the consensus says, you just don't know sure. what, what these are going to come out as. But I definitely think black sheep has the best chance. Yeah, I think so, too. I gave it my pick as well, and I put 11 on that one. So slightly higher. All right, film editing. 
Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, and Vice. I'm going to go with Vice here, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> because I don't love it, but I think he's going to win, and I'm giving it a 13. Okay. I gave Vice my pick as well, but only a one. This is the least confident I feel about this one. Foreign language film. Capernaum, Cold War, Never Look Away, Roma, and Shoplifters. Roma, 24. (laughs) I'm going to say this, though. This is the one I'm worried about. And I... (laughs) That sounds dumb, because I gave it 24 points. But it would be so... Academy to give Roma best picture and give Cold War foreign language film. Like that is the most Academy thing ever that could just wreck everybody's ballots, completely confuse everybody and be like, that makes no sense. How can you possibly do that? If it's best picture, it's got to be best foreign language by default. Like that's the thought process there. So I'm a little scared still, even giving this 24 points. Well, if I may be so bold and say, first of all, yes, I picked Roma 2 and I gave it 19. So I'm pretty confident in that as well. But I will say this. It's the category that matters. So you have best foreign language film. And among the foreign language films, yes, I think I don't think you should. There's part of me that says you shouldn't give Roma props as best picture. Give that weight in best foreign language film, because none of these other foreign language films made best picture. I think if you had other foreign language films in there that were part of Best Picture, I could probably see that argument, but not possible. If, if you see something is better than Roma in foreign language film, then it by default has to be better than Roma. It has to be nominated over Roma in Best Picture. Like it just can't. It doesn't make any sense. So, That's Roma, why it's so Roma being in Best Picture is what's ruining the best foreign language film. It it could I mean, in this in this massively awful like worst case scenario type scenario thing. Gotcha. But, okay, I'm giving it 24. It's not going to happen. Makeup and hairstyling, order Mary Queen of Scots and Vice. Vice, 18 points. Vice, 17 points. So if we're looking at all these so far, it looks like we're pretty, we've only picked one different one. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess you're right. So it's a good thing we're doing confidence points. That's And that's really where confidence points really have a lot of, you have a lot of fun with them because we could probably be, even all the way up through this and be like, what's the tiebreaker? Yeah. So I think confidence points are going to be a big factor here. All right. If you're listening, listen even carefully. Come closer. Watch and listen. Best original score. Black Panther. Black Klansman. Black Beale Street Who Could Talk. Black Isle of Dogs. And Black Mary Poppins Returns. I'm sorry. That was too many black because the first two. Whatever. Sorry. Let me read those again. Black Panther, Black Klansman, If Beale Street Could Talk, Isle of Dogs, Mary Poppins Returns. Well, my heart is burning with desire for If Beale Street Could Talk. So I'm going with If Beale Street Could Talk, Nicholas Patel's score. It's beautiful, and I'm going to give it three points because I think Black Panther could take this just as easily. This is true, but I also gave it my vote, and I'm putting it at a 14. So this will be really interesting. So both for If Beale Street Could Talk? Yes. Okay. Three for me? Yes. And 14 for me. All right. Best original song. All the Stars, Black Panther. I'll Fight, RBG. The Place Where Lost Things Go, Mary Poppins Returns. Shallow, A Star is Born, 
When a cowboy trades trades his spurs for wings, the ballad of Buster Scruggs. I went with shallow, and I'm going to give it 500 points. Well, if that were possible, then <laughs> you'd be great. Cause I... <laughs> 23 for me. Yeah, I gave it 24. I figured. This to me feels like a lock, and I'm going to give it all my points. Yeah. If it no, doesn't, if it doesn't, I'm turning the TV off and I'm not recording with you on Monday. I know. It's a lot <laughs> for me too. So. <laughs> all right. Production design. This is where we probably start. I'm looking at all the rest of these. These are all like single digits on my ballot. So, um, we might start varying here. Production design. We have Black Panther, The Favorite, First Man, Mary Poppins Returns, and Roma. I'm going to go with the favorite and the period piece here, but I'm only going to give it a nine. Okay. I'm going with the favorite as well and giving it a 10. <laughs> Why are we doing this separately? We just do this together and, it's just, wild. and buy a big pop. We should buy the, the Thanos Captain, Captain America. Yeah, oh my gosh, I want that so bad. If we end up tying, that's what we should do. <laughs> <laughs> that's more expensive. So that's, nobody's winning here. Yeah. Well, yeah. it doesn't look like we're winning at all here. All right. Animated short. Animal behavior. Bow. Late afternoon. One small step, weekends. Bow, easily, and I am probably going to regret this, but I'm giving it 19 points. All right. I picked Bow as well, and this reminded me that I'm picking with my head and not my heart, because I want Late Afternoon to be the winner, but that's not going to happen because Pixar wins everything, except animated feature film. But I'm only giving it a two. Live action short. Detainment? Ugh. Fav, Fav, Marguerite, Mother, and Skin. I'm going Marguerite, and I'm giving it 10. Okay. I've got Marguerite as well, and I'm giving it 3. Incidentally, Mother without the exclamation point, just so people are, are, are clear on that. Also, that wasn't nominated this year. Sound editing. Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, A Quiet Place, and Roma. So... This is heart starts talking a little bit here. Um, I'm going to go with first man. I'm only going to give it an eight just in case, because I could see a world where this goes to Bohemian Rhapsody or even a quiet place, maybe for its one potential win here. But I think that the Academy will do the right thing and give it to first man. I think so too. I would like to see a quiet place win because it's only nominated once and yay. Um, John Krasinski. But, uh, yeah, I'm going with First Man, but only giving it a four. All right, Sound Mixing. Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, Roma, and A Star is Born. Bohemian Rhapsody gets this one, and I'm giving it a 20. Wow, okay. Pretty confident there. I'm going to go with A Star is Born, but only giving it a five. Visual Effects. Avengers, Infinity War, Christopher Robin, First Man, Ready Player One, and Solo, A Star Wars Story. Aquaman. And the write-in vote for Aquaman. (laughs) (laughs) First Man, and this is absolutely my one probably heartfelt pick. I would love, I really, really want Aquaman. Uh, See, I can't. See, just go ahead and write it in. Just throw the throw the points. Oh away. my gosh, I really these are my like two of my favorite films of the year. I really want First Man to win the VFX award here, 
but I'm only going to give it two points because I don't think it's probably going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to go with, um, I think, the popular pick, and that's Avengers Infinity War, but only giving it a six. All right, adapted screenplay. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Black Klansman, Can You Ever Forgive Me, If Bill Street Could Talk, A Star Is Born. I'm going with Spike Lee, Black Klansman, 15 points. Same here, 8 points. All right, best original screenplay. The Favorite, First Reformed, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. Super, super important category, okay? Because this could go any direction. My heart kind of wants it to go to First Reformed. I think Green Book could potentially win this because if Green Book is a best picture contender, it'll oftentimes correspond to the original screenplay category or the the screenplay in general, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me because I don't think Green Book and is any business in the screenplay category. But I'm going to go with the favorite here, and I'm only going to give it five points. Okay. And I'm giving the favorite my pick as well and seven points. All right. Those are the other categories. Now we're getting into the last 20 minutes of the Oscars categories. <laughs> the actors, actresses, director, and picture. So leading off actor in a leading role, we have Christian Bale from Vice, Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate, Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, Viggo Mortensen, Green Book. I'm going with Rami. And I'm only going to give this one 14 points because I'm kind of middle ground on this. Yeah, between him and Christian Bale, I was kind of split, but I went ahead and went with Malik, and I'm giving him 23 points. Oh, boy. This riding could, that donkey. I'm riding it. <laughs> That's not a teeth comment, people. That is not a teeth comment. That was just an actual coincidence, I swear to God. Oh, my God. <laughs> just realized that as it came out. <laughs> Don't edit. <laughs> I'm pulling an Oscars. <laughs> Putting a foot in my mouth. Let's just <laughs> let's look to the side. Please move on, Where's Patrick. Please move on. Can we can we can we get going? Okay. Actor in a supporting role. <laughs> Without his foot in his mouth. <laughs> Marshall Ali for Green Book. Adam Driver, Black Klansman. Sam Elliott, The Star is Born. Richard E. Grant, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Sam Rockwell, Vice. Mahershala Ali, seventeen. Mahershala Ali, 18. <laughs> Actress in a leading role. Elisa Aparicio, Roma. Glenn Close, The Wife. Olivia Coleman, The Favorite. Lady Gaga, A Star is Born. Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Glenn Close and 12. Glenn Close, 16. Okay. Actress in a supporting role. Amy Adams, Vice. Marina de Tavira, Roma. Regina King, If Bill Street Could Talk. Emma Stone, The Favorite. Rachel Weiss, The Favorite. Regina King and 11. Regina King for me and 15. All right, directing. Black Klansman, Cold War, The Favorite, Roma, Vice. Gotta give this one to Roma and Alfonso Cuaron, and I'm going to give this one 16 points. Nice. I'm going with Roma as well, and I'm giving it 20, and I'm giving you five extra points that you can't use on this ballot for pronouncing his name so eloquently. So good for you. And finally, best picture. 
Wait, wait, wait. Pause. Back that up. Wait, wait. What am I going to do with five extra points that don't apply to anything? That That's like, that doesn't, that's not points. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. Well, then kudos. Five kudos. Well, I want the points. Well, you can't have them. <laughs> I'm taking I want them back. the points and the kudos. Okay, fine. <laughs> and finally, best picture. And we did this in under three hours. Black Panther. Black Klansman. Bohemian Rhapsody. The Favorite. Green Book. Roma. A Star is Born, and Vice. I'm picking Green Book. And for those that have been paying attention, I'm giving it one point. Patrick, I don't know if I've ever heard you say anything about like one or two or three. Did you actually ever use your low numbers? Maybe. Yeah, film film editing was one. Oh, that's right. Animated short was two. Live action short was three. Sound editing. I'm glad we're having a third party peruse these. Yeah. Just to make sure. But anyway, back to the Best Picture nominee. I am picking Green Book. I Again, this goes back to what I said at the beginning of this show where I truly do think that Green Book's going to win, and I want to say that I think that the reason for that is because of the preferential ballot. The preferential ballot is in play this year, and that's where they list off like their top four films, and I think that Green Book has more potential to be one, two, three, or four versus Roma, which I really believe is either going to be Beloved or... People are going to be completely bored by it and not put it on their ballot at all. So I think Green Book has a potential here to steal this. But that's why I'm giving it one point, because I could be absolutely wrong. There would be no surprise in that. Yeah. This will be an interesting thing to have. Has has a foreign film ever won Best Picture? It has not. There are all kinds of records that are going to be broken. So for those of you who are super awards heavy, you can follow lots of like sister podcasts we have like nextbestpicture.com or Mike and Mike and Oscar. And those guys do awards like year round and they talk about this stuff. There's like all these predictive streaks with regards to like what one at the guilds always wins at the Oscar. And like if they're wearing red when they present it, then they will win if they're wearing green at the Oscars, that kind of stuff. There's like tons of those streaks. They're going to come to an end this year because it is just absolute unpredictability when it comes to these nominees. And one of those is we can have our first ever foreign language best picture winner, which would be fine. That would be fine. And that's my pick, Roma. And I'm putting it smack dab in the middle at number 12. That feels safe and also confidence. I like it. There it is, guys. You heard it. Our official 2019 Oscar ballot is out there in audio form. Hopefully Aaron won't edit out weird picks and, you know, insert new ones or whatever. But we have the integrity going on with Jeremy. We're going to hand him our ballots and then he's going to tally those up and let us know who wins and who gets a new pop on Monday. Sounds good to me, brother. I'm excited. Me too. Everyone, be sure to tune in next Tuesday morning for our special Oscar reaction episode, as well as our recipients of the Feelers Choice Awards. We'll talk to you then. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and I'd love to chat. 
And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.